Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, and I hope you took advantage of reading the introduction in our study. Dana did a phenomenal job of giving us the background of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We know that it was more than likely written to churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, by John. Now, we saw some of the similarities in the letters, his writing style, word usage, as in the Gospel of John. And we know the backdrop. Most of the first generation of believers have died. They've gone on to be with the Lord. John is one of the last, in fact, the last disciple, apostle, to still be living. And can you even imagine what that must have been like for him? But he is, at this point in his life, writing now, he had written the gospel of John to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. He's writing the letters to encourage the people to continue to live in the truth and to live like Jesus lived, to remember his life. But on top of all that's going on within the church, because heresy is sneaking its way in with the Gnostics. We read a little bit about that. Some of them denying the deity of Christ. Some of them denying that he was actually God in the flesh. And yet, we also know they had a very oppressive government. The Roman Empire was becoming increasingly difficult for the believers to live out their Christian faith without being persecuted. In fact, we know all of the apostles end up dying martyrs' deaths, except for John, who we assume dies of old age on the Isle of Patmos after they tried to boil him in oil. Now, can you even imagine the persecution that these first century Christians endured? And we look at our world and we think it's bad. It is, but it's not anything like they faced. And yet they were able to do it with grace and confidence and boldness. And they stayed true to the Lord to the very end. So they are our example as we follow them, as they follow Christ, what Paul was able to say. So as we open 1 John 1, let's look at verses 1 and 2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning what? The word of life. That is Jesus. He is the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And John is saying, we didn't just see him. We didn't just hear him. We touched him. He was real. Do you remember when Jesus in his resurrected form appears the second time to the disciples and Thomas is with them this time, the one who doubted and said, unless I can touch his wounds, I'm not going to believe him. What did Jesus say? Touch me. See if it isn't me, Thomas. And that's what John is saying. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we lived with him, we watched him. He is the word of life. He is the word of God that became flesh. And look at verse three. He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I hope you, as you're reading through 1 John, are highlighting, underlining, circling, putting a square around, whatever you do to set words apart, because we're going to see fellowship 
several times. What is he talking about when he says the word fellowship here? So that you may have fellowship with us, even indeed as our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. He's referring to John 17. What did Jesus pray in the priestly prayer? He said, Lord, may they be one just as we are one. And when we study the book of John, we know that that word for one is one in essence. What did Peter say when he wrote his letter? We have now become what? Partakers of the divine nature. Because you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you have been grafted in not only to the lineage of Abraham, but into the very Trinitarian relationship that Jesus enjoyed with the Father even while he was on earth. Because we have the Holy Spirit living in us and we are connected to the Father through Jesus Christ. You have been invited. That's the fellowship that he's talking about. We have been invited into that and consequently, we're going to experience joy. And what did he say? He said in verse four, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Not only are we going to experience joy, but John is saying, my joy will be complete when I see you experiencing this fellowship that we have with the Father through Jesus Christ. Why? What does he say in 3 John 4? I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And if you have biological children or spiritual children, you know this is true. You have no greater joy than to see them walking in the truth, to see them claiming for themselves the gospel, the truth of the word of God, and choosing to live their lives according to that truth. And not only that, then they become proclaimers of the gospel themselves. And they want to see other people come to Christ and they begin to actively disciple others. And as they do that, your joy overflows because there truly is no greater joy. And when you've discipled maybe a group of young women and you see them grow into maturity and then they in turn begin discipling others and you watch their excitement over their disciples getting it. That just increases your own joy. And that's exactly what John is saying here. He's saying, my joy is going to be complete, full, overflowing when I see you living in the truth and experiencing the fellowship that Jesus Christ died to give us. We go on and look at the message in verses five through seven. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and we announce to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship, there's that word again, with him, and yet walk in the darkness, what does he say? We're lying. We're not telling the truth. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he says, not only will you experience the fellowship of Jesus and the Father through the Holy Spirit, but you're going to have fellowship, a oneness, a unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. He grants us that one heart and one mind in Christ Jesus. Now, if Jesus Christ died, that we might experience this fellowship of oneness with the Father through the Holy Spirit, and then consequently a oneness with each other as we come together to worship him, to study his word, to share the gospel, what do you think the enemy's going to do? Keep you from spending time in the word and prayer. Why? Because he doesn't want you experiencing the power 
of the fellowship that Jesus Christ has purchased for you on the cross. The abundant life that Christ came to give us. Not only that, he's going to come in and be divisive within the body of Christ. He wants to come in and separate your family. He wants to come in and separate your small group. He wants to come in and cause problems within your church body. Why? Because when we're divided, we're not powerful. We're not unified. We're not experiencing the fellowship that empowers us to live the Christian life. So consequently, we find ourselves separated from the power of the Holy Spirit, trying to pull up our bootstraps and do the Christian life in the flesh, and we cannot do it. And when we're trying to do it like that, guess what is on parade? Our flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> People don't look at us and see when we're divided and separated and not living in the fellowship that has been given to us by the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit, when we're not experiencing that, walking in that, then we're going to be fleshly and the enemy is going to be able to use us to bring division and pain, to become legalistic, to start policing and judging everybody else instead of looking in and saying, oh Lord, is there anything in me that doesn't honor you? Instead, we start comparing and competing and all those fleshly things that we see in the word of God that are so ugly, and yet we find ourselves falling into it as well because we're trying to do it on our own. And that's what John is saying. He's saying, do you understand the fellowship? Don't let these outsiders come in with their false teaching. Don't listen to them. Go back to the truth of what God revealed to us through his son who is the life. In fact, that's exactly what... Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing him is eternal life, and he is the light. And if we know him and we're walking in oneness with him, then we're going to be walking in the light because what does he promise to do? To light our path, to give us light for the path that he has marked out for us. But we will not have that if we're not walking in fellowship with him and in fellowship with one another. So you best believe the enemy is going to fight us there. That's why we need to be aware. What did Paul say when he wrote to the Christians in Ephesus? We are not unaware of his schemes. <laughs> we know how he works. The problem is we're just not always watching for it. We're not always alert. And it's very easy for any of us to slip back into old habits of the flesh. But we know that God is light. He is the one who illumines. He is the one who grants revelation. He is the one who lights the path that he has marked for us. In fact, it's from the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1, 1 through 3, where in Genesis 1, we see the Father in the beginning God created. In Genesis 1, verse 2, we see the Holy Spirit when it said the Spirit of God was brooding over the deep. And in Genesis 3, we see Jesus because what does God say? Let there be light and there was light light. And what does he say? He is the light. Jesus is the light. And he's also the word. In fact, if I go back to the gospel of John, and if you'd like to turn there, you may, or you may listen while I read to you. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light 
of men. Jesus is our life, and he is also our light. But guess what? He will be our light for all of eternity. Revelation 21, 23 through 25 says, And the city has no need, that's the new Jerusalem, <clears throat> of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Do you not just love that? The Lamb is the lamp of heaven. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. So what do we know about God? He is life, and there is no life apart from him. Not only is he our life, he is light. He will illumine the darkness for us, and he will light the path that he has marked for us. In fact, we know he's good, and everything he gives is good. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from whom? The Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what do we know about sin? <clears throat> sin is dark. In fact, Spence in his commentary on 1 John said, in like manner, darkness sums up the elements of evil. Foulness, secrecy, repulsiveness in gloom. In all but the lowest forms of existence, it inevitably produces decay and death. Everything of the kind is excluded from the nature of God. He is only light. No shifting shadow, no variation, but he is also faithful. Pick back up at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, and that's sin singular, that means our sin nature is what he's referring to there. We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, sins plural, the sins that we commit, and sins of omission, if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He is faithful and just. So you one day don't take advantage of the fellowship that you have with the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you step out into your day in the flesh and you find that you're just really making a mess of things. <laughs> you're saying things you shouldn't have said. You got angry about something that shouldn't have really made you angry. You're feeling offended. You're focused on self. And suddenly the Holy Spirit who's been speaking to you quietly all along, <laughs> you begin to hear his voice wooing you back and saying, don't go there. <laughs> don't do that. It's that still small voice warning us to repent and turn back to the Lord. Because what are we doing when we're doing that? We're going our own way. We're going away from God and towards self. And so we repent, we turn back to the Lord. And what do we do? We confess our sin. And to confess our sin, to repent of it, means to forsake it, to not want to do it anymore, to agree with God that it's sin, that it's lawlessness, as the Bible tells us. And so the Bible here tells us that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from a little bit of righteousness or unrighteousness 
all unrighteousness. That is why we know what the Bible says is true because we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness when we confess it. And so consequently, when the Father looks at us, what does he see? The righteousness of Christ that has been imputed, given to us. So when the enemy lies to you and tells you you're unrighteous, you're not worthy, you're inadequate, you go, I know it, but praise God, Jesus is. (laughs) And the righteous one has become for me righteousness given by the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in his eyesight, I'm righteous. And may I tell you, you make different decisions when you believe you're righteous. You want to live up to that righteousness. So once again, the enemy doesn't want you to know you're righteous. He wants you to feel shame and guilt because then you're gonna make more bad decisions (laughs) because you feel so bad already. Why not, right? No, no. You are the righteousness of God in Christ, grafted into the very Trinitarian relationship of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have been granted that right because you are in Christ. And sweet sisters, that perspective changes everything. I want you to know you are Loved, And I want us to briefly look at John's writings and John's life as we think about what it looks like to live loved. Because if we really believe we are loved the way God does tell us in his word that he loves us, it is going to free us from fear, insecurity, self-loathing, shame, guilt, Because we're going to understand, like John did, I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. You are the disciple whom Jesus loves. In his gospel, believe appears 98 times. Love appears 57 times. You think those two words are important In John's gospel, what does he want us to believe? That God is who he says he is and that we are loved. That we are who he says we are. And we must believe it because we all act out of what we believe. In fact, in Tyndale's commentary, it says, this is why the Christian religion is not obedience to a legal system, but devotion to a person. So you must believe that Jesus Christ loves you, that he died to take your place on the cross, and you receive his gift of salvation by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we have to believe to receive, right? So we repent, we believe, we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we are changed. And then the sanctification process Begins. Our growth in spiritual maturity begins from the moment of salvation until the day we see Jesus face to face. It will continue. And we understand that it is getting to know Jesus more intimately. That's what the Christian life is all about. He is a person, and we get to know him by spending time with him. Now, when we move into the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we see that he uses the word beloved 10 times in these, th- ten, these three short epistles. And I've just given you a little sampling here, but just listen to these. Beloved, now we are children of God. 
And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. I may not be completely like him right now, but one day I will be. That's where I'm headed. And I'm going to be like him. I will be as he is. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So beloved, surrender to his great love that we might love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. You are beloved. But you know, sometimes when we're going through difficult seasons, a trial, a health issue, financial reversal, loss of a friendship, family disagreements and tension. Things can feel dark, can't they? You know, it's interesting, the morning after Steve's initial, when we realized, okay, um, looks like he may have cancer in one of his kidneys, he had gone in because they thought he had a kidney stone and they gave him antibiotics for a couple of weeks because his left kidney looked inflamed. The ureter did as well. They're thinking, okay, the kidney stone probably blocked the ureter and it caused inflammation in the kidney. We'll give you a couple of weeks of antibiotics. You'll be good to go. And so we went back in, they did a CT scan and realized "Eh, that kidney still does not look right. So the doctor called him and said, come back in for a contrast CT and let's see what's going on with that kidney. And so called him in and said, doesn't look good. We're thinking it might be a malignancy. Well, then we've got appointments. This was on a Tuesday afternoon. So that Thursday, he's got appointments with an oncologist, Friday appointments with a urologist, and we're looking at a possible biopsy. And it's just like, you know, you think, I thought we had a kidney stone. It's like, whoa, that's pretty heavy duty. And I got up the next morning, I read my Bible, I was having my quiet time, and this little book was in the basket of devotional things that I keep in my quiet time spot. I don't know where I got it. Somebody evidently gave it to me, and I thought, a testament of devotion. That probably needs to go in my devotional basket. So I think I stuck it in there thinking, at some point, I'll get around to reading that. The next morning, Wednesday after that office visit with the doctor, I just felt drawn to this little book. May I? Did you see the tabs? (laughs) Do you see the highlighting? (laughs) The things that are underlined? I devoured this little book. It is written by Thomas Kelly, a Quaker who died in 1941. And these are actually his teachings that have been compiled into this little book. And he loved the Lord in a way that few people ever really experience because we hold back instead of fully surrendering to the Lord. It's written, it reminds me a lot of Brother Lawrence's little book, The Practice of the Presence of God. In fact, he quotes him in here. But he listened to this. He says, the heart is stretched through suffering and enlarged. But oh, the agony of this enlarging of the heart, that one may be prepared to enter into the anguish of others. Yet the way of holy obedience leads out from the heart of God and extends through the valley of the shadow. And he says, for most of us, we don't go the other half is what he calls it. We go half way into following Christ. We kind of, we go to church, we come to Bible study, we maybe even read our Bible, but there are certain areas, certain things in our life that we're kind of still hanging on to. We haven't fully abandoned and fully trusted the Lord with. 
And he calls that an adolescent type spiritual maturity. Because we're caught in the outworkings of religion and the busyness sometimes that goes along with that. And yet we don't have the inner peace that a real mature disciple has because they've come to that place of utter abandon and surrender to the Lord. And he calls that a simplified life. He says the mark of this simplified life is radiant joy. What are we looking at this week? This week, be joyful. And how are we filled with joy? Through the fellowship that we've been invited into by the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. He said the mark of this simplified life is radiant joy. Now listen to this. I mean, people don't write like this anymore. Just listen to this line. It lives in the fellowship of the transfigured face, capital F-A-C-E. Knowing sorrow to the depths, it does not agonize and fret and strain, but in serene, unhurried calm, it walks in time with the joy and assurance of eternity. Did you get that? Even in agony, even in anguish, we're walking in literal time on earth, and yet what are we doing? We are walking with the joy and assurance of eternity. Knowing fully the complexity of men's problems, it cuts through to the love of God and ever cleaves to him. Listen to this. These do become simplified in holy obedience. And the poise and peace we've been missing can really be found. But there is a deeper, an internal simplification of the whole of one's personality, skilled, tranquil, and childlike trust, listening ever to eternity's whisper, walking with a smile into the dark. Oh my goodness, did I just get a postcard from heaven? And I wrote at the bottom of that page, I can smile because I'm not holding on, but being held. And I put my initials, DG. 11, 26, 23. May I just tell you the words of this little devotional book are true. And they're exactly what we're studying right now in 1 John. God is speaking to us that he loves us, that he can absolutely be trusted because he is love. He doesn't just love. It's not an aspect of his character. He is love. It is who he is. Now listen to this. I was talking to Dana on the phone one day last week, just trying to think through some of this, so overwhelmed with all the truths. I feel like God is just, I feel like I've been drinking out of a fire hydrant <laughs> the last month. Living loved is, the present, is in the present and directly linked to his presence. So if I'm living loved in the present, my right now, it is all about living in his presence and being aware of it. Because what do we know from 1 John 4, 18? Perfect love does what? It casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment and those who fear are not perfected or mature in love. So if I know I'm loved and I've surrendered to the perfect love of my heavenly father, then I know his, his love for me is going to cast out fear. It's going to eliminate fear because I can trust him. Which I said, Dana, I think that's it. I think the Lord is showing me love is manifest in trust. 
And these are Dana Street's words. Yes, and trust has no backup plan. Made me think about Abraham and Sarah. Poor Sarah, she gets to be such a bad example so often. (laughs) Wouldn't you hate to have all the things in your life recorded so that you could be somebody's bad example? Um, But anyway, I mean, all of us would qualify. I know, I can, personal experience, I know I could. But we do have her example written in scripture. And what did she do? God said, you're going to have a son. And this son is going to be the one through whom the blessing from Genesis 3.15 is going to be fulfilled. And so God gives them this promise. And, you know, they did go 10 years. I mean, that is a really long time to wait for fulfillment, right? And so Sarah decided, okay, God must need a backup plan, right? God must need me to help him out. So I what we'll do? We'll do what all the pagan people around us do. I'll just give you my handmaiden and we'll have a son that way. Well, we know that didn't work so well and they're still having problems to this day. (laughs) That was not God's plan. And we know God doesn't need our help. He desires our cooperation. And it helped me to realize, Lord, if I lean back on my backup plan or if I even have a backup plan, (laughs) I am proving I don't trust you. So if perfect love casts out fear, I don't need a backup plan because I fear nothing because I know you, because I know my God and I know that he is good. And even when I can't understand, maybe I can't trace his presence, I can trace his character because I know who he is. Perfect love is manifest in trust Trust is perfect love, knowing you are beloved. That's what John is coaxing us to grasp in these letters. But we also know that living loved leads to revelation. John knew he was loved, and he is given the greatest revelation any human being ever received, the book of Revelation. The end times. But not only did God reveal to him the end times, Jesus Christ in all of his resurrected glory appeared to him. In fact, what does it say in Revelation 1? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And oh my goodness. If they thought the time was near, we can look at our world and know, oh, Lord Jesus, the time is near. His coming is close. The trumpet will be blown. And at that moment, it's all over. We're gone. He calls us home. And we want to live faithfully until that moment. And Revelation 4.1 says, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. You realize heaven is just a spirit realm that we're unaware of because we're bound by the physical. But it is not way off somewhere out light years away. It is literally behind a veil. It's literally right here all around us. And yet we're so often unaware because we're so locked into the natural and the physical. But he said a door opened and he saw in to the very throne room of heaven. And the first voice which I'd heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you What must take place after these things? I want to encourage you 
that on a daily basis, he is inviting you. And he's saying, come up here. Anytime somebody goes to Jerusalem, they always said, we go up to Jerusalem. Because it was held in high esteem. It was considered to be an exalted place because God's presence dwelt there on the mount. I don't know where your secret place is. The place where you encounter God on a daily basis. Where you read his word, where you sit at his feet, where you listen to his voice. Where you respond in prayer. But that place becomes sacred because his presence is there. And he's saying, come up to me and I will show you. Not Donna or Dana or Jean. I will show you. I will show you. Because God is the God of the individual. Jesus has a special place in his heart for the one. And he's inviting us to come up so that he can show us. His call is to come to him, to sit at his feet and hear his voice. Do you know, I mean know, in your deepest being that you are the disciple Jesus loves? I want to encourage you this morning to surrender to his perfect love and allow him to cast out all fear. May he lead you into full trust, absolute surrender, abundant life. And please hear me. He loves you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And as John Mark Comer said in his latest book, listen to this, God is love loving. He is love. He is perfect love. And he is love loving. And he's inviting us in to that relationship. You know, as I was reading through our introduction, I came to something Dana had written on page 13 of the introduction, and it was really a bunch of scriptures that she's paraphrased as a blessing, really a declaration that we can hear God speaking over us. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to put everything down, and I want you to stand, because I would like to read it over each one of you as a blessing from the Lord, because these are biblical truths taken directly out of the word of God. And the enemy lies to us, and he is whispering these lies in our ear, I mean, viciously and constantly. So we have to refute the lie with the truth and say, that is not true. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is not true. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is not true because I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. <laughs> when they would do the Aaronic blessing, the Levites would stand and they would proclaim that blessing over the people and the people would stand to receive it, which is why I ask you to stand. I'm gonna speak this as though the Lord is speaking to you. I created you. I have called you by name. You are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved. I fast fashioned you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have engraved your name on the palm of my hands and hidden you in the shadow of my protective wings. Even more than a mother cares for her infant with tender compassion, I care for you. I have counted every hair on your head and directed you at every step. 
Wherever you go, I go with you. And wherever you rest, I keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy your hunger and drink that will quench your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You belong to me. Nothing will ever separate us. We are one. I know the plans I have for you, and they are good. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, his shalom, his well-being in Jesus' name.